I'm always amazed at what God does. I really am. And I think if I ever come to a day when I stop being amazed, then there's probably something wrong. Because he's infinite and I'm finite, so for the finite to stop being amazed by the infinite would be kind of weird. Right? I said, if I ever stop being amazed, I said, I know there's a problem. Because for the finite to stop being amazed at the infinite would just be weird. Wouldn't it? Let's face it, you know. That would be weird. And uh, God is amazing. And uh, we're so grateful. The connections that the Lord puts together. And, uh, you know, we got connected with Dean uh, over the last year or so. And uh, I know Barry's worked with a number of different things across Canada. And we got the privilege of having him here with Tony in January, I think it was, right? January? I think so. And, uh, wow, what an amazing time. And then we had uh, Dean meet with our leadership at that time at our house that weekend. Just we, we were having a staff and elders meeting, and we had Dean was here. So we said, well, let's take advantage of him while he's here. And then he beat us up and uh, worked us over and, uh, you know, asked all kinds of really hard questions. And because of the masochistic tendencies in us, we said, let's invite him back to do that again. And so um, we had uh, our, our core leadership team got together on the weekend. And, and uh, Dean, we just invited him to come and to talk to us about, about our, um, our next 25 years. You know, we're 25 years old this spring. It's going to be an awesome celebration. We're going to do an outreach into our, our community and lots of fun. But, you know, where are we going to go in the next 25 years? And if you're not willing to ask the questions, you're probably not going to go anywhere. So we were invited them to ask hard questions and, uh, and to um, be honest and to be uh, transparent and, and take some real inward glances into who we are and what our history is and where we're going. And so in some ways it was painful. Other ways it was incredibly uh, challenging and in other ways wonderfully rewarding. And that's probably supposed to be all three of those things, so that's good. And, um, and then we, you know, of course, when you have somebody here, you work them like a rented mule, so he's also speaking this morning. And, uh, and so it's a real privilege to have a dean with us. And if you didn't get a chance to hear him when he was here in January at the conference, you need to go back and listen to it. Uh, his his uh, talk that he did on covenant was absolutely astounding. And, uh, and the one-sided nature of our covenant with God was absolutely an amazing message. I've listened to it several times since then. And um, I don't know what he's going to talk about this morning. I don't know. Uh, I haven't got a clue, but I do know that he listens to the Lord. And that's pretty important, don't you think? And so I would like you this morning to just stand to your feet and put your hands together and welcome Dean to Desert Stream as he uh, comes and brings a word this morning. Yeah. Thank you. Sit down, please. I think what I want to focus approximately 45 minutes on, if it's all right with you, Pastor Kevin, is the power of one man not leaving another behind. <laughs> just the, just, oh, oh, yeah, probably a couple hours. I'm going to condense it to 45. Just the things it says in brotherhood and friendship, you know. 
The military, never leave a man behind. <laughs> you want to come up and give a testimony on that or anything? No? <laughs> okay, all right. All right. It's, it's great to be here. The inside joke is when I got to the airport, no one was there to pick me up. <laughs> so I, I, uh, there was no issue of forgiveness. It was funny, but I, I just told him, you're going to be in my sermon illustrations for a long time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I want to look at two or three passages um, uh, this morning, you can turn to Colossians 1, um, t- two or three passages that are just standing out to me in my heart. I have a very simple word, um, and it's really just about the goodness of God. We, we need these reminders over and over again, because for whatever reason, our hearts have a hard time believing and life and circumstance and other things come along and we find ourselves in a position of unbelief or accusation or doubt and we need encouragement again to believe but part of the the maturation of the body of Christ is to get to a point where we're grounded We're grounded in truth. We're grounded in love. We're grounded in who God is. You know, at this time of year, we're already, uh, many are looking toward Christmas. Many have already started decorating. We're in a season uh, between Canada's Thanksgiving and America's Thanksgiving from October to November of, of, of turning our hearts in gratitude all the way into the time of, uh, of just recognition and celebration of the coming of God to earth. What an astonishing thought. But when he came the first time, he's coming again, by the way. When he came the first time, the announcement of the angels in uh, the book of Luke, the announcement of the angel to the shepherds was that they were bringing good tidings of great joy. That's King James, glad tidings of great joy, good news of great joy. Some of you may not know that that word good news is actually in the Greek evangelion, where we get our name evangelist, right? Because in our mind, the evangelist is the one that gets people saved by bringing them the good news. And that's good, that's reasonable, that's, a, that's, that's a, uh, uh, a, a dedicated five-fold ministry function, the evangelist. They specialize in connecting people to the story of God, sharing the good news of God's love and, and the grace and, and uh, um, transformation that happens when people believe But the word evangelion, which is translated good news, is where we get our English word gospel. In Old English, however those things happen, evangelion became good news. The translation good news became goat spelt, 
good news, good report. And that became gospel. So I just want to connect dots right, right now that when you hear the word evangelist or evangelize, it's not just a function, it's not just a role, it's actually the thing that is the good news and the good news is the gospel and they're all three talking about the same thing. We evangelize out of the good news, the gospel is the good news and gospel comes from the same word we get our word evangelist. And why I'm going into this, why that strikes me is because at a time like this when we reflect, I don't know that we're amazed enough at these few verses that are announcing the birth of Christ to bring us good news of great joy. I know I told you to turn to Colossians, but I'm talking out of Luke right now. Just keep your hand there. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. I bring you an evangelion of great joy. And he later, uh, the, the angel later characterizes these glad tidings, this good news, as peace on earth, goodwill toward men, with whom he is pleased. Again, King James, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, more modern translations. Same kind of idea, but good news, glad tidings, peace on earth, goodwill toward men with whom he is pleased. And here's what I want to register. All of that was said before the cross. The Father's heart was announcing the war's over in my heart. The great rebellion, your enemy status. See, we think we can't get into God's pleasure until we go through a series of gyrations and steps and because really he's kind of a hesitant father. He's kind of a begrudging father. He's kind of a distant father. He's kind of a scorekeeping father. He's kind of a judgmental father. Maybe he's not kind of that at all. Maybe he's really, really that. And so the reason the good news is so good, the reason it, it, it penetrates our hearts and causes us to go, wow, I, 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 I didn't realize. The reason everything changed at that boy's birth, that God who became that child, when he was born, the reason the angel could say that was because it was the beginning of the revelation that the father had goodwill toward men. He was pleased pre-cross. Now the cross was going to become the mechanism of securing it in legal terms, but the point is we have to see the father's heart. We have to see his heart in history, and it's not the father we grew up with. It's not the, the way we translate some of our own earthly experiences and turn it into a, uh, a definition of who he is. In history, angels broke through and said, with the birth of this child, everything changes. It's such good news. It's such good news that I want you to understand God's heart towards you is good. His will towards you is good. The war is about to end in victory. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Do you start with the thought 
that he might like you. You know, there's a difference between loving your kids and liking them. Right? We kind of painfully snicker through that one because we've all had those moments. Good thing the kids have already been dismissed for children's church, right? No, no, no. We, we, we love our kids. You can't not love our kids, your kids. But there's times where it's like, I don't have goodwill toward you right now. <laughs> no, he says, you don't even know my capacity for love. You don't even know my capacity for goodwill. You entered as enemies, I called you friends. You entered opposed to me, I made you one with me. My will is so good you can't even believe it. And that's the problem. It's so good we struggle to believe. And so the real challenge among the people of God is not to come to salvation. It's to realize that our hearts are broken in so many ways that the faith we start with doesn't actually touch all the broken parts. And the broken parts also need to be evangelized. You don't have an entire heart of confidence. It's why David prayed, unite my heart. Unite my heart because there's a part of me that believed, whether that was five years ago or 30 years ago, came to the Lord when I was five years old. I've been on a journey of my heart coming into full and total and holistic agreement with what a part of me said at a young age, what a part of me believed at a young age. That little part believed God was that good, but the rest of me is in an evangelistic journey to total confidence, total faith, total belief. I'm here before you today to say he has come and it is good news. And the evangelion of God, whatever anointing I might be able to walk in, in that grace isn't to say, are you saved? It's to ask, do you believe in his goodness? Do you believe he's really that good and that he's pleased and that in this season you can be at peace with him in a new way that doesn't have to fade away? We just sang about God delighting in mercy. This is, this is one of those great ways to demonstrate what we don't believe. We can quote the verse, we can sing the song, and in a moment our hearts are touched by it. Jesus said, go and learn this. I delight in mercy. That word is so strong, delight. Now, I delight in mercy when I need it, right? I delight in mercy when I need it. But God is revealing the Father's heart who changes not that he delights in mercy all the time. From the garden to now, he delights in mercy. There's not a moment in your life when he doesn't delight in mercy, there's not a moment where he's second-guessing and thinking, well, I've got several options on the table and mercy's one of them. And there's actually some things I prefer to mercy 
What God is actually saying is, I prefer mercy in a way that I want you to learn. Jesus says, go and learn. How often when somebody, we, we like it when he gives us mercy, we, we delight in those moments, right? Man, I'm, I messed up, I fell, I feel ashamed, I'm, I'm, uh, I've hurt people, I don't know how to fix this mess, I need mercy. I'm delighting in mercy right now. We delight in it in a personal application when we're the recipient. How often do you delight in it when it costs you something to give? Do you delight in mercy when you're the one footing the bill for somebody else's failure? How often do you delight in mercy? Go and learn to prefer it to think better about it than some other person getting the payback they deserve. Well, they need to learn their lesson, you know. Time for them to kind of wake up and smell the coffee. Really time for them to, you know, get accountable. Well, all those things may be true, but can you delight in mercy above that? Can you delight in mercy in the midst of that? There may be some hard lessons to learn, but are you actually, are, do you have goodwill in your heart to announce toward them? Do you look like your father's heart in peace, goodwill toward men with whom he is pleased? Can you love in the midst of the immaturity or brokenness or offenses that others are bringing to your door? Colossians. Verse, eh, we'll start in verse 9. Colossians 1, verse 9. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Your Father has qualified you to share in an inheritance. It's a big inheritance. It's a good inheritance. It's an undeserved inheritance. Paul to the Colossians is in one verse describing Luke 15. Turn to Luke 15. Luke 15 is the famous passage. You may think you know this so well. I just want to give us a refresher. You may... You, you may know it, but I'm, I'm actually believing that um, Luke 15 is going to evangelize a part of your heart this morning. Luke 15 has three stories in it. It's the parable of the lost sheep, it's the parable of the lost coin, and it's the parable of what we call the prodigal son, prodigal meaning uh, extravagant and this has been misnamed, 
it's not the prodigal son who was so extravagant in his waste. It's the story of the prodigal father who's so extravagant in his love. And you know the story. I'm, I'm, I'm going to summarize it, but I'm going to maybe bring out some points that will help illuminate and evangelize part of your heart. This is the father who prefers mercy. This is the father who sent the son who said, learn this, I prefer mercy. I delight in mercy. That word delight, it associated with prefer. It's actually way stronger than prefer. But delight can be the feeling we get when we receive it. Do you prefer it when you give it? This is the father who sent a son to tell a story about two brothers and a father. And in this one series of stories, the, the common theme is the lost thing that gets found. The lost sheep that gets found, the lost coin that gets found, the lost son that gets found. And so we know the basics of the story. There's an older brother and a younger brother. And the older brother is dutiful and diligent. In fact, I'm going to tell you on the front end, the description of the older brother in verse 25 and uh, 29, the description of the, the older brother is all about setting up the contrast between law and grace. The older brother is described as working hard and obeying all the commands. It's the labor, it's the commands, it's the, it's the diligence in duty. And Israel was well known in, 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 uh, uh, among that time and, and throughout history going all the way back to Exodus. God had referred to Israel as my firstborn son. So you're talking to, Jesus is addressing Scribes and Pharisees gathered in his midst and he's trying to talk about the Father's heart to people that understand Israel's national identity is a firstborn son who work hard to follow God and keep all his commands. And that firstborn son has an attitude very, very different than the preference of mercy. So the contrast is immediately between who the pharisaical spirit represents. Jesus is going right to the heart of it. Guys, I got a story to tell you. There's a lost sheep. Shepherd left 99 and went and found that one. There was a lost coin and a housewife turned her house upside down to find that little coin. There's a lost son. So the youngest son comes to his father one day and he says, Father, I desire to be on my own. Give me my inheritance now. The father gives him his inheritance. He goes and lives lavishly, extravagantly, foolishly. Right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, it's the age-old story. He does it all. He does it all wrong. His inheritance is squandered. He ends up living with the pigs, which, again, this would have been 
especially vile language to a good Jew. A son of Abraham living with the pigs. He comes to his senses there and says, sort of to his senses, he says, I I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to go back and be with my father. And this is where we'll pick up in verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now here's the deal. The youngest son is still part of this family that thinks about God wrongly. And so the youngest son is trying to prepare the script to persuade a lovesick father who has already uh, declared peace on earth, goodwill toward men. He's already preparing the script of how he can earn his way back. He's got the right points. I'm properly contrite. I'm properly repentant. I'm forsaking my old way. I want to come back to you. But he's not thinking like a son. He's thinking like a slave. If I could just be a servant. It's all the proper penance rituals we go through when we don't know who God is. I'm going to whip myself. I'm going to bleed. I'm going to make sure you know how sorry I am. And I don't even want a place at your table. Just stick me with the servants. Don't call me son anymore. I'll serve. I'll do well. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of the hired servants. Verse 20 is one of the most brilliant in scripture. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, let me tell you, that boy's mindset was a long way off. So the father's going to close the gap. He's not going to make his son work through the labor of all that wrong thinking. He's going to fix it with a sprint. Now, Here's a couple things you have to know. A Lebanese missionary shared this, whose culture is still very closely identified, even today, with, with how it was back then. Two things that are shocking about this story that we don't fully appreciate. First, to say to your father in that culture, give, my, give me my inheritance early is to say to your father, I wish you were dead. Because an inheritance only passed once the father died. So it's not just, hey, I'd like to take a draft, I'd like to take an early draw on the paycheck. You know, you might do that at work. Hey, boss, man, I'm running a little short. I'd like to take a draw on my paycheck. That's not what this was. This was what I'm supposed to receive when you die, I would like to go ahead and get... And all of the subtext, the emotion of that was, you mean nothing to me. I wish you were dead. And the father gave it. Do you know how many times in our own life, as unbelievers and as believers, 
some part of our heart basically has that posture. Just, you know, don't talk to me right now. I don't like you. I don't want to know you. Your ways don't interest me. I've got my own plans. And in our own way, we're just, God, you're dead to me. In our own stubbornness, in our own sin, in our own blindness, in our own anger and hurt and offense, the broken parts of our heart can have, you might not be at that, at that level if that's a 10 out of 10, but we have the 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 in there throughout our life. The son said to him in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. didn't tell you the second thing the Lebanese missionary said. The first was the son was really saying, Father, I wish you were dead. The second is in that culture, uh, you know, uh, uh, the more Eastern you go in culture versus Western, the more respect there is for the elderly. And so an older man was expected to walk with stately grace. An older man was known in the community, you know, he's got the, the crown of silver, beard and hair, he, and, and, you know, he's rushed around enough in his life, he's not in a hurry now. I'll get there when I get there. That's okay. You all go ahead or wait, but I'm not in a hurry. You walk with stately grace befitting your stature and age. You've earned the right to show up on your own dadgum time. Right? You aren't a prisoner to the clock. That's a young man's game. I'm retired. Thank you very much. If I get there a little late, well, deal with it. Plus, they didn't have jeans. So a young, uh, 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 an old man is in a tunic that's fitted and extends down to the ankles. Tell me how you're going to run in that. Now, women know this better than men. If you got to run and you're in a dress, you're hiking that sucker up above your knees so that your legs can bend. So the picture is a father that has been told, I wish you were dead, I don't care about you, just give me your money, is now patiently waiting, looking for any sign that his son's heart is turning to him, and the moment he sees it. How far can you see on a clear day? I don't know. Uh, you know, half a mile, mile down the road, the moment he sees this stately man who's not in a hurry hikes up his robe would have been the most embarrassing and shaming thing to see an old man, right? Skirt pulled up, dead sprint, this is a crazy in love father. He doesn't care what others think. He's not moved by others' opinions. 
you can tell God all day long why he shouldn't really give that kind of mercy. You can be the dutiful, law-bound older brother. You've lived clean and tight and right. Don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, don't run with those who do. You can be that guy and he's going to pass you up on the road with his skirt hiked up, sprinting like a crazy man because he's got peace to announce and goodwill toward men with whom he is pleased. He's got people to save and ransom and rescue who have blown it, who have screwed up a thousand ways to Sunday. That's his heart. He's going for them. He's going for you. He's coming for you. In your own ways, in your own weakness, in your own challenges, we have a lovesick father. All three of these parables emphasize the delight of the finder. So the first point, and I'm going to move quickly because I've kind of laid out the case, so I'm just going to extract some points from this. First point is God is lovesick. He's not the distant, aloof, cold, judgmental father you may have known in your earthly life or been trained to expect in, honestly, just bad teaching. It's, it's, it's bad teaching to paint God in a way that Scripture doesn't reveal and the Son did not confirm. Jesus came and said, it says of him that all the fullness of deity dwelt in him and he was a perfect image of the Father and Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through me. In other words, while there's many applications of that, you can't really see God or get to God unless you go through who Jesus is and how he acted and you can't find Jesus acting in a way that wasn't fully preferring mercy. The only people Jesus had trouble with was the older brothers. He was pretty stern and strong with them. He said they're whitewashed sepulchers and dead on the inside and clean looking on the outside and he turned over tables in the temple and all of that was directed at the religious spirit that was, that was described as not entering in and preventing others from entering in. He hated that because that's not his father's heart. His father's heart was for everyone to enter in. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should be saved. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Over and over and over again, we're shown by Jesus a different witness of who the father's heart is. And Colossians says, we have reason to give thanks because the father... See, sometimes we think Jesus is the nice one and the father's the angry one. It's not right. Jesus is a perfect revelation of the Father's heart. Colossians says it's the Father who has 
predestined you to share in this inheritance. Well, this is the Luke 15 story. In some way or another, all of us, whether born into Adam's sin or by our own choices, and it's always both, for some period of our life, we're squandering our inheritance. We're giving it away. We're giving it away to others to fill holes in our life that we need love or satisfaction or meaning or power or fame or whatever it is. We squander our inheritance and the Father comes and says, I've got it waiting for you. I'm keeping it. You can't actually give away what's mine to give. And you think if you squander part of it that my resources are somehow depleted because I'm limited. I have limitless resources. You can squander an inheritance and I've got more to give. So the moment I see, the moment the father sees in the distance, all the wild love take, kicks in. He's sprinting for you to recapture your heart. This is who I am. Do you know who I am? I'm qualifying you back into the family. That's my heart. His love is sufficient, unbegrudged, and full of joy. You know, when we give, we are very aware and we keep score. If we give, we keep a little mental checklist of how many times we've given financially, how many times we've forgiven emotionally, how many times we've served in labor, how many times this, that, and that. We keep that list. Father has a right to a different frame of mind, but he keeps deliberately choosing love as, at his own expense. And there's not a bottom line in which he says, I'm just tapped out. Got nothing more to give. So what's it like to be God? If we really want to understand what it's like to be God, we have to see the previous parables. And, and, and especially in that culture where the Pharisees a prayer of the Pharisees of that day was, God, thank you that you have not made me a tax collector, a sinner, Gentile, tax collector, Gentile, or a woman. The Pharisees would pray that. Thank you, God, that I am not a tax collector, a Gentile, or a woman. Jesus comes and says, you want to know what my father's really like? He's like a little housewife. This little housewife, you know, they don't have a lot of money. They're scraping by to get by. And she's in charge of the checkbook, and she lost this coin. You know what? We, we talked uh, yesterday at the leadership meeting. Coins don't, certain coins may not have much value. You're talking about back in those days, like with the, the widow's mite, Fractions of pennies were currency. They don't have much worth. But the worth of something is never uh, uh, designated solely by its face value. It's by 
The worth of something is determined by what someone is willing to give for it. Right? So you can have what looks like a worthless coin at face value, but if I, as a coin collector, look at that and see, you think that's a 10 cent piece, that's a $10 million piece. You could go and spend your 10 cent piece on a Snickers bar at the gas station. And you just spent $10 million for a Snickers. But the store thinks it's 10 cents and they circulate it and it could go through 100 hands all thinking it's 10 cents until someone sees the real value of it. And then the value gets determined by the investment, the exchange of value. Someone comes along with $10 million and buys your dime. It's not worth a dime anymore. It's worth $10 million. So what the story is is saying at face value and underneath that is this little woman lost something that was of little value but that's not how my father sees the things of little value. My father will turn a house upside down for the little lost coin. So the lost sheep that gets rediscovered, the lost coin that gets found again, Jesus is saying there's actually... Uh, there, there is a different kind of joy in the rediscovery of something. Have you ever worked on a, a really complex spreadsheet or business proposal, or in my case, I've done books on my computer, and then the hard drive crashes? Oh, and it's so painful. You've been working on this one particular chapter. I forgot to hit save. I just had it exactly like I wanted it. Then the hard drive crashes. Now, I had a certain joy in that chapter the moment I finished it. I had a certain joy. I was really, really happy with it. But I didn't know how much, how happy I really was with it, how much joy I did have in it until it was lost to me. And then when it's lost, I'm in agony and I'm going through, I'm paying money, I'm putting in time to recover the hard drive. Why? Because in my house, there's a coin there that's valuable to me. The house is a wreck. The hard drive is crashed. And if I, and it's happened a few times, where I am able to repair the hard drive and I find that file, it's a different kind of joy. It's joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's like my lost chapter has been found. Jesus comes along and in the context of a little housewife, he says, ask my dad. He loves finding lost things, things that other people think aren't of worth, worth much value, things that seem small and, and trivial, things that... You try to dismiss in your own life, well, that's, not, I, you know, that's just a, a dream I have. That's just a little thing. I shouldn't, even, uh, you know, I shouldn't even worry about that. I ought to be focused on other things. This isn't just about salvation. It's a way of life. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about the heart of a God who cares about your little coins. It's not just that, that you have in your own way, you're just one of a billion or six billion people and and he loves you and has saved you, it goes deeper than that. The things that matter to you matter to him. The things that you feel like you've given up on or lost or sacrificed because 
You blew it. You deserve what you had coming. It's not God. He's already offending the older brother mindset, describing God as a housewife dancing around her house. The ancient of days, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, the rock of Israel, dancing around his house like a little housewife celebrating this little coin. And that's just teeing it up. Those two stories are just teeing it up for then him to tell the prodigal son story. When the son finally turns, he knows the older brother has always had a place in his father's house. And so he's thinking, I just need to be that guy. And so he's got the script of all the ways and reasons why God should believe him, be convinced by his argument, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to serve right, I'm going to live right, and I'm willing to just do that as a slave. You don't even have to call me a son. And the father, the father's like, are you done yet? Just You're trying to convince me of something that I already announced. I bring you good tidings of great joy. You've got this serious, why so serious? In fact, we're going to break the spirit of serious off you. I'm going to throw a party. Good news of great joy. The, the, the kind of joy that grabs hold of you, shakes the religiosity off of you, cancels your dead-end assignment to prove that somehow you're worth something to God. He's already dancing. He's going to kill the fatted calf, put a ring on your finger, a new robe. And by the way, the description of him sprinting He brings that brother down. He tackles him. He falls on him. The son is there protesting on the ground with his dad on top of him saying, shut up, we're having a party. Dad, I just want to do it right and be, shut up. I saw you coming and I already put in the order. It's lamb chops. See, this is good news for the heart. This is how we start to believe is to get 200 proof good news in our soul. It changes our thinking. It messes with our religious systems. The the, the word in Colossians and the preference of God for mercy is actually saying the older son And the younger son are combined in Christ in that the older son is the firstborn. It's not the firstborn of Israel. 
The older son is actually Jesus who does fulfill the law, who does the commands and does the work for us, but his heart is different. His heart is different than Israel trained under the law of Moses. The heart of Jesus was trained in relationship to his father. If you're trained in the law of Moses, you don't have to have a relationship with the Father. You just have to do the commands. Jesus came knowing his Father's heart and completing the commands. And, and he's a totally different older brother in our equation. He's right there with his Father. He's, it's all over in the picture. He is the lamb that's slain. He's part of the welcome party. He's the one bringing us back to the Father that picture is showing us the father's heart and it's setting up a contrast between that older brother and our older brother who the father leverages in a covenant of blood to restore our inheritance. The son just wanted to be a slave. The father was going to have none of it. You're coming back into my family and you're coming back a fully restored son. Frederick Beekner said this. I'm going to end with this. People are prepared for everything except for the fact that beyond the outer darkness of their blindness, there is a truly great light. They are prepared to go on breaking their backs, plowing the same old field until the cows come home without seeing until they stub their toes on it. There is a treasure buried in that field rich enough to buy Texas. They are prepared for a God who strikes hard bargains, but not for a God who gives as much for an hour's work as for a day's. They are prepared for a mustard seed kingdom of God no bigger than the eye of a newt, but not for the great banyan tree it becomes with birds in its branches singing Mozart. They are prepared for the potluck supper at first Presbyterian, but not for the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything about your father is bigger, better, more generous, more extravagant, happier, more joyful. It didn't just start with a declaration of good news. It's good news right to today. And... I am going to pray and believe that part of your heart, just one other part, is starting to unite with that truth. One other part of your heart today is believing the evangelion of God. And I don't normally do this, but I actually feel like this is a day to ask, do you want to meet that father? You may be here and have never met that father never come to a point of salvation and giving your heart or have been saved but have been living the older brother's life in that father's house. I just want to give an invitation. If you don't know the goodness of that father and you want to experience that kind of love and mercy, you want to give your life to Christ, I want to ask you to come up to the front. We're going to have people pray with you. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. This is just a moment you don't want to miss. It's just a moment you don't want to miss. If that's you, you don't want to go on living without that father.
And if that's not you, but you have felt like you understand the older brother more than the younger brother, you need a taste of that father's love also. So I'm just going to pray. Whoever shows up, we'll have a ministry team to pray for you. I want to ask you to stand. God, I thank you that you are working in our midst, in my heart. God, unite my heart. And every believer here, unite their heart, God. Let this penetrate the fractures and the divisions between the parts of us that believe and the parts that don't. God, we're asking for a grace to bring our heart more together in the knowledge of you. God, I'm asking for the song of the angels to penetrate our souls. That you would come right here to Belleville, to Desert Stream and announce peace with God, goodwill toward men, good news of great joy. We receive. We just say yes. We don't... We aren't going to lay out the terms. We're going to work hard for this. We're going to prove ourselves to you. We just say yes. We receive your love and generosity and goodness. We throw our arms open. Tackle us with love. Lay out the feast for our souls. Let us dine with you and fellowship with you and know that you are good. Taste and see your goodness. God, for those that are longing for this and leaning into it, but they don't know how to, they don't know how to make the ask, I just ask you to chase them down. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. realize it's a little late, but if, if you, if God was speaking to you and you're one of those people that, that Dean was speaking to by the power of the Holy Spirit, we just want you to come up. We want to pray with you. We don't, uh, we're going to dismiss everybody here in a second, but we would just love to be able to pray with you and, and uh, meet you where you're at as Christ is meeting you where you're at, where he's running down the road and he's embracing you right where you're at today. And uh, we, we just want to pray with you. We want to uh, share scripture with you. We want to, you know, if you've never made that decision before, we wanna, we'll get, we're going to give you a Bible. We want to bless you. We want to encourage you in your journey with Christ. It's the greatest journey anybody can take. We're here because we're enjoying the journey. That's why we're here, right? We're part of the journey. And uh, we're grateful for the journey. Uh, so we're going to open those altars up. And just, uh, just before I do that, I'm going to just pray blessing and dismiss everybody. But... We encourage you to come, and, and do not hold your heart back. Give it to Christ today. He will treat your heart better than anybody's ever treated it before, because that's who he is. So, Father, we just thank you today for your love for us. We give you praise today. We thank you for that incredible message of your affection for us, that you are uh, right from then. You've always been. This is the thing you've always been. 
the heart of uh, adoration, the heart of love, the heart of praise, the heart of joy, the heart of celebration, the one who would lift up his his loins and chase after us, the one who would uh, celebrate and dance uh, because of uh, the lost being found once again. This is your heart. And we thank you for it today. And, and Lord, we, we, we love you because of that today. We, we're attracted to that love today. And so, Father, we just pray as we go that, God, that love would be with us all week. It would, uh, it would encourage us. It would cause us to share, to, to, to encourage, to build, to bless, to forgive, to give mercy, to do all of those things that have been done for us to do for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We encourage you to come. We would love to pray with you and, and, and minister to you, speak to you. Uh, Lord bless you this morning.